Open your Bibles. We're in Judges 4 and 5. Uh, we're not going to read all of that. Here's a, here's a problem that we're going to have as we go through Judges. We can't go through it uh, exactly perfectly verse by verse, except actually today we are. But sometimes we're going to have stories that span a little more narrative than we can just read the whole thing. And so I'd encourage you to kind of read along in chunks. This week, week is Deborah and Barak. Um, Barak. Uh, and then uh, next week is uh, Gideon. And we'll be reading several chapters there. But uh, try to read these stories. I think they're really fascinating. You know, one of the things that I do as a discipline... I was trained to study scripture, and some of you who've been in that realm at all, what happens is you can't read scripture because you're always studying it, you know what I mean? So everything connects and everything means something. And so I try to like force myself at least three or four times a week just to read these stories without my mind going like, oh, what is this Hebrew word? Oh, how does this connect to this place? Nope, stop, nope, just read the story. Because I think when you read these stories, you start answering some of these questions uh, naturally that we're going to ask this morning about these stories. If you're new uh, with us, or uh, in case you need to remember, because that's the whole problem, is that we forget, uh, we keep talking about it, then Judges is a book about uh, God's people not listening and obeying him. God tells them to do stuff, they don't, and things get worse and worse and worse for them. Uh, and it runs in a cycle. We've seen this cycle, we'll probably look at it every week. Uh, it's kind of cartoony, it comes from the Bible Project video, and it looks like this. In general, you have a time of peace, they're supposed to have a land flowing with milk and honey and everything's great, but then they decide to give in to sin. They decide to forget God and worship idols. Say, forget God. Amen. Say, worship idols. Every time. This is what's going to happen. Every single time they forget God and they worship idols. And it's easy for us to be like, you idiots. How could you forget God? How could you worship idols? And we find every week, that's us, man. We struggle with that. So uh, they give in to sin, forget God worship idols, then some oppression happens. God hands them over to what they want. Hey, you want to worship idols? You want to worship lesser things? Fine. Uh, here you go. I love you enough to let you just abandon me. And then that leads to destruction, oppression. They repent. God raises up a deliverer for them. Usually it's called a judge, uh, not like gavel judge, but like a leader, uh, some sort of ruler that raises up and delivers them. Then they have peace again, and the cycle gets worse and worse and worse. And we talked about last week, if you want to throw up the, uh, uh, the yeah, uh, the self-ordering cycle. You know, for us, we can kind of see how we have temptation. We forget God. That leads us to idols, selfish desires, and ultimately sin and death. We looked at some verses about that, but this is what happens when we're in the center. And it's important to bring this back up, not just because it's a sick graphic, yo, but because I think it really helps us think through the fact that like, hey, when I focus everything on me, it just is, man, it's so important. Even secular psychology would tell you all this. This isn't like magic formula. Like around, uh, we have this holiday coming up that y'all get really excited about. Some of you might have already decorated for it. Please don't. But it comes at the end of the year. It's called... <laughs> my people oh man I just got goosebumps whoa buddy <laughs> yes yes but it's Christmas oh man that 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 lost me good job uh, both season open Wednesday, so if you haven't shot a deer yet, you've messed up, like myself. Anyway, so uh, Christmas happens, and during Christmas, we all say it's better to give than receive, because you want to focus on other people, and it's so precious, and we help other people. We get this, right? And so we understand when we put ourselves at the center, things don't work out, and it turns out that's how God created it, and that's what the Bible says. And so like, if you're new to all this, it's like, duh, 
I don't need the Bible to tell me. This is just how things go. When I get selfish, I get selfish, and I get more selfish, and that ultimately leads to selfishness, which is sin and death and awful things, right? It's not a hard concept. And then the other cycle we talked about is the pattern of the Bible. It's the kingdom cycle where Jesus came, Mark 1.15, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is at the center, and that leads into a constant circle of repentance. Our minds are transformed. We see the world differently. We see everything about God and his gospel and how he's connecting to make things right, and that grows our belief, and we continue to point everything to the gospel with Christ at the center. These are the things we're shooting after, right? But we struggle, and so this is what every week we're going to talk about the same thing in Judges. Uh, you might hear the same intro for another, you know, nine weeks, but it's helpful because we're going to forget. This was an entire nation of people who saw God in clouds of fire, who spoke to them through thunderous roars at mountains, and they had, you know, uh, uh, the stuff on the ground. What is this, you know? And then they had uh, quail and all these things that, why did I forget the name of that thing? Manna. <laughs> it's literally, what is this? Uh, but anyway, Hebrew. So they had all this stuff, and God did all these huge things to them, and they forgot. And as Westerners, we'd be like, man, if God showed up in a fire in my bedroom in the morning, I might never forget that, right? And then, but they forgot. And so we, just, we do the same thing. We forget. And so we need to do this pattern over and over and over of remembering because we're going to forget. That's why we preach the gospel every week. That's why we say this every week. Please grab a Bible. If you don't have one, there's a hard black backed one. Hard, I miss a, hard backed black one. It's a hardback. It's black, right? And uh, you need to be in it. We're in Judges 4 and 5 this morning. I could say a lot of stuff. I could make some sick graphics and we could talk about stuff. I keep making fun of my graphics because they're terrible, but that's okay. Uh, I could make some stuff. My words don't matter. If we're not getting the word of God, we're sunk. So we're going we're gonna to pray right now. Uh, we're going to invite the Lord to, uh, to give us ears to hear, man, because it's his spirit that's going to be transforming us. It's him who changes us. So let's pray for that. God, thank you for everything, for life, for, man, the song we just sang, we want to give you our life. Here's our life, Lord, as individuals, as a church. We pray that you would speak what is true and that we would hear that truth. We'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We'd repent and believe in the gospel. May your spirit move, Father. Thank you for your great love for us. Amen. As we read through this, we're going to read all of chapter four together. Some of you are like, oh gosh, when's lunch? That's okay. We're, it, it'll go pretty quickly because uh, it's a good story, right? Uh, spoiler alert, someone gets a tent peg through their head. So that's exciting and gory. Whoa. Yeah. Stay awake. It's going to get exciting. But um, I want us to think about four questions as we kind of read through this. Uh, those of you who are not like extrovert, super fast ADH people, can't imagine who we're talking about here, but those, those of you who maybe aren't me, then I want to put some questions that, to think about that help me as I read this. These questions look kind of like this. As we read the story, think, who humbly listens and obeys the Lord, right? Who humbly listens and obeys the Lord? What does this tell us about women? <gasps> We're going to talk about women. Oi, the ladies, the dames, right? We're going to talk about ladies. That's important, women. Um, just said dames, whatever. Uh, who ultimately wins and gets glory? How does this point us to the gospel? Here's why this is so important. We read stories about Ehud stabbing a really fat guy with his left hand, and then the fat just engulfing the sword, and then he defecates, and the guy's like, oh, it smells bad in there. We're not going to go. And we see these weird stories in the Old Testament. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? We, we didn't talk about the story specifically last week, but it was, it was in there. Uh, and then we have this story, a tent peg push through the head. And we said, man, what does this say about the gospel? What does this say about Jesus? We just did several weeks on Jesus' teachings 
It's very important to read the Old Testament to ask, what does this say about the gospel? Because God gave us all of Scripture as an entire narrative, and it either all points to Jesus, or we need to quit wasting our time and quit pretending. Because either Jesus is the center, as we had in that diagram, or this is a terrible hobby. This is stupid. Let's not do this. Jesus is Lord. He's resurrected, he's ascended, and he is king, and we seek him. And so everything comes back to that. So these are the questions we're going to be looking through. Starting in chapter 4, verse 1, it sounds like this. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Same cycle. Every time it says they did what was evil, the two things they're doing, what? Forgetting God and worshiping idols. Right, so that's what they did right? It says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. We got that from 3.7 last week. It defined what uh, doing evil in the sight of the Lord is. Now 4.1, they're doing that again. Uh, verse 2, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagayoim. Say that word. No, it's okay. You don't have to. I was kidding. I was kidding. Uh, it's always weird to get the Y-I-M. Anyway, uh, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron. Ooh. How many of you are afraid of 900 chariots of iron? You're not. You don't even know what those are. Can you picture that? The best you do is import a scene from Gladiator. You don't know what a chariot of iron is, but this story cares a lot about that, and we're going to come back to that. But basically, 900 chariots of iron mean you're going to lose. No one defeats that because those things trample thousands of people. Just go, 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 because iron is going to roll you over. Is anyone here strong enough to stop iron? Maybe my wife, but aside from that, no one can stop a chariot of iron, right? So that's the big scary thing. He had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Had Israel listened and obeyed God, these people wouldn't even be here. So that's the very first point to, to notice. Chapter one, God told them to drive them out. They didn't. And now God gives them over to this, says, hey, you want to worship these people? Fine. You want to worship their gods? You want to seek them? You think they're above me? You worship them? You can have them. But then actually they're going to oppress you. Israel was supposed to be in charge of the land. They're supposed, this is their land. They're supposed to be the rulers of it, ruling with God, the land God gave them, which is like Genesis 1, the whole thing God gave us to do, to rule with him, alongside him. That is what they're supposed to be doing, flowing in milk and honey, and it's not happening because they don't trust God, and things get really bad for them, and these uh, Canaanites overthrow them, and it specifically says that, uh, uh, that he, he rules them for 20 years, cruelly oppressing them. Uh, on the one hand, we could look at this in this really dark light and say, why would God do that? Why would God hand them over? It's like, man, if you understand love and you understand how relationships work, at some point you can't force someone to love you. You can't force someone to stay with you. You can't force someone to do anything if you truly love them. And so if someone wants to leave you, they leave you. You can do everything. You can pave the way. You can give them clouds of smoke and fire and, and all these things. But if they're going to leave, they're going to leave. And so God loves them enough to let them do that. And this, someone needs to hear this. God loves you enough to let you keep abandoning him, but one day you will be separated from him forever. God also loves you enough to rescue you, as we see in the story. They cried out, and as we're going to see, God raise up a rescuer. And so maybe you should be considering, am I abandoning God? Am I trying to leave him, or am I allowing him to rescue me, to take care of me as he promises? Because these people, they allowed this for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out, but it's for 20 years they lived under this cruel oppression. They didn't have possession of the land. 
They weren't free to worship God in peace and unity. They had disorder and chaos. In chapter 5, which we'll talk about later, chapter 5 is kind of like a worship song over what all's happened here. And at the end, we get kind of a, a snapshot about what this oppression looks like. Chapter 5, verse 30 says, Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb for every, uh, a womb or two for every man. It sounds kind of like a pub song. A womb or two for every man. So what this is saying here, we would hear that and we're like, uh, we're like, whoa, okay, a womb or two for every man. These, these are sex slaves, okay? The, the, the Hebrew here is what's happening is when Sisera conquers, what he does is he takes women, the Israel women, and he oppresses them to be nothing more than a womb for someone to plunder, a spoil of war. You get this woman's womb. You guys get this. You understand this awful thing. There's a lot of words I could use to explain this, but there's children in the room. You understand the awfulness of just the phrase sex slavery. That's here. And so when we're talking about cruel oppression, it's interesting that the snapshot we get of what that cruel oppression looks like, aside from losing the land, aside from not being able to worship God freely, all these things, specifically women are mentioned at the end of the story is, hey, these women aren't safe. They're oppressed and they become spoils of war. I think it's interesting that Deborah calls that out in chapter 5 as she writes her song. This is cruel oppression. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. Deborah is the first woman judge and the only woman judge that we get in Judges. So she was a woman. That's a big deal. Obviously, you know, I don't need to emphasize this. You guys get this. Back in the day, women weren't seen super valuable, right? And we didn't have this gender revolution where everyone was like arguing over how women are the exact same. So back then, it just was assumed uh, a woman is lesser. And so in this story, the right of this story to call out Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of, okay, hold on. This is a woman. There's a big pause here. Those of us who are in this. We kind of read this as, yeah, that's right, G.I. Jane, let's go. Uh, this is kind of an offensive, tense thing here. And so it's at least worth calling out that in this structure, the scripture, this person once emphasized there's a woman here. Women in some ways are being oppressed, we find out later, and there's a woman who's a prophetess, the wife of Lipida. A prophetess is a female prophet. What is a prophet? Someone who speaks the words of God. God speaks to them, they speak the words of God. We could unpack that way more, but that's a very basic standard all through Scripture. They represent the words of God, and they speak the words of God to his people. And, and unlike other rulers we see in Judges, Deborah is not a war general. Deborah's not going out to war and slaying a whole bunch of people. She's a good ruler. She's a counselor. And it reminds us that the ruler that we ultimately need isn't someone just to come and destroy the enemy, but we need someone to guide us, someone to counsel us in how to live. Sounds like Jesus. <laughs> points us to Jesus. And, and all these judges in some ways point to the completeness of who Christ is. Verse 6. She sent and summoned Barach, the son of Abinom of Kedesh Nephtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord of God of Israel commanded you? Here comes the words of the Lord. Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera and the, uh, the general of Jabin's army to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Just by sheer numbers, this sounds like a bad plan. Just if you're a military person, you're doing the math. 900 iron chariots are a big scary thing. They can mow over thousands of people at a time. So if you have 10,000 men and you're going to go meet him with iron chariots, you're going to lose, right? This is a bad plan. But this is what God said. So we're going to discover as we're asking who listens and obeys God. 
who humbly listens and obeys the Lord, right? So Deborah summons Barak. She tells him the word of the Lord, uh, and this is the plan. Barak said to her, Barak, verse 8, said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Brock has this response when he's asked. Here's the words of the Lord, and Brock says, if you'll go with me, I'll go, but if you will not go, I'm not going to go. There's two views here, right? And I'll tell you what I side with, but it's just worth knowing there's two views. Some people see this as weak, timid faith. Some people will, will teach you and tell you that Brock is kind of faithful, but kind of not, and, and there's this tension here. I think the whole argument is kind of a wash. It doesn't matter, because the end of the story is still the same. But I think that it would be silly when there's no scriptural evidence here to assume that Barak is timid and to use this as a moment of saying, oh, maybe he's not having enough faith. I think we should look at a little bit differently and say, hold on, what do we know so far in the narrative? A woman is a judge for the first time in the book, and a woman has leader and rulership over Israel here. That is a huge deal, right? And then Barak, this military leader that she calls for, he, uh, she says, here's the word of the Lord. And then Barak's response is, why don't you go with us? If you're not going to go, I don't want to go. This could be a sign of actual faith to say, hey, hold on, hold on. If you're not going to go as God's prophetess, as the person that God has put to judge us, I, I've seen the past. I know how God brings judges. I know how God brings leadership. If you're not going to go, I don't want to go because you represent the voice of God and the words of God, right? I, I land on that side. I think that Barak is actually being faithful here and he's not being timid and passive. In fact, Hebrews 11 lists Barak as one of the people of having great faith. And so again, what do we make of that if we're trying to paint him as a character who's like, oh, well, if you're going to go with me, girl, I'm going to go, but if you want to go, that's not, what, that's not what's happening here. I think Barak is saying, yes, if you go with me, I will do it. If not, I'm not going to go because you represent the words of the Lord and we're going to go together. Either way, those are two different views. I side with that Barak had faith here because ultimately what I see here is a story of uh, humble obedience to God. And so she tells him, hey, surely I'll go with you, but this, this thing you're doing, this whole big war, it's not going to be about you. It's not going to be about your glory. In fact, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Barak might naturally assume here, okay, this is Deborah's thing. She's a woman. She's the judge. We don't know that. Uh, I'm kind of asserting there that he assumed that. But he decides to do it anyway in the next verse. Deborah and Brock, they went to Kadesh, and Brock called out Zebulun, Nephthali, and Kadesh, and 10,000 men went on his heels, and Deborah went with him. Brock ultimately listened, right? Brock said, hey, uh, I'm going to listen, I'm going to obey, I'm going to do it humbly. And I think it's worth asking, could we do that? If God were to tell you, hey, I want you to do X thing, but no one's ever going to care. You're not going to get any glory. In fact, someone that you think is lesser is going to get glory. Would we do that? And I think, I think so often we have this block in our culture of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and, and this whole rationale of uh, growing and, and the American dream and all this, that we are all climbing some ladder to ascend some great thing. And it's really duplicitous when you think about these other things, like what we just quoted about Christmas and all this, but there's this tension here where all of us naturally want to be in the center. That's why we have that whole graphic. We all want to say, I'm the most important person, I'm the most important thing. And then here you have a story of like, no, 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 actually to hear and obey the Lord naturally involves humility. It's not your glory. In fact, it's actually going to go to someone that you wouldn't think is glorious at all. Could we do that? We're going to talk more about this faith and uh, this humble obedience here in a second. Uh, let's keep reading. Uh, 
They went together, they did this thing, verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite uh, had separated from the Kenites and uh, descendants of Hoab, the father-in-law of Moses, and he had pitched his tent as far away as he could on Oak Zananim, that's a fun word to try to say, Zananim, which is near Kedesh. This is kind of a side note in the story, this is kind of like, it takes you back, it's like, hey, here's this big military thing about to happen, oh, by the way, there's these people that dwell in tents way over here, right, and they're kind of connected, but they're kind of not, okay, cool. Okay, we'll come back to that later. That's kind of the story he's doing here. And so you're like, okay, neat. People dwell in tents far from war. Cool idea. What? We'll get back to that. Verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out to all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down to the Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera Sisera got down from his chariot and he fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Hashrahigom and and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. You have 10,000 men versus 900 chariots. Not just that, but also all of his men. And so again, you could kind of do some math and assumptions in your head. If 900 chariots are worth mentioning and then all the other men aren't worth mentioning, how much more other men are there? Are there maybe equally 10,000? We don't know. Ton, huge army here, plus these iron chariots. Terrifying thing. How does 10,000 men take out 900 chariots plus a whole bunch of army people? doesn't make any sense. It sounds like a, a ridiculous plan. There's no way this could happen. In fact, this story reminds me of a famous boxing match that happened yesterday. Who likes boxing? Does anyone watch boxing? Oh, come on. Someone here has watched. Has anyone ever watched a boxing match ever? Thank you. <laughs> we don't watch fighting sports, David. We don't do that here. Okay, stop. Uh, this is a big, strong guy. Here he comes. There's a picture of him. Yeah, nope. Let's go to the one that's got the two big guys. There they are. Anyone know who these people are? Ah, oh, come on. Who? Ah, Hathor, the mountain. Anyone know that guy? Who, who knows him as the mountain? He was in a show that some of you have watched. Yeah, his name's Hathor Bjornsson. He's huge. Bigger than you, bigger than Lee, bigger than Lee and Nikki and I all combined. That dude eats you for breakfast. He's huge. This guy on the right. This guy on the left's Eddie Hall. He's uh, uh, won the world's strongest man several times. Uh, he's a European. I think he's a Brit. And, and they're both huge men. Both of them have won the world's strongest man, and they despise each other. And here, like, the drama comes in. is He's like, oh, well, if you wouldn't have cheated, you would have won. Oh, well, you're a big stupid idiot. So they hate each other. And so they decide they're going to do a boxing match. And some fat cat with a ton of money said, you know what? We're going to put millions of dollars to see these huge men box. And so this is what they're both looking like when they're cut. Uh, I had pictures of when they were bigger. When you're, you, you don't look this like this when you win World's Strongest Man. If you've ever seen World's Strongest Man people, they're twice this size because they have to be, right? No one this size lifts 1,000 pounds. You've got to be bigger. But they cut a lot of weight. This is how they look like. Now, what happened was Eddie, while he was training, he ripped his bicep from his arm. Just imagine you have a bone. Your bicep wraps it. <laughs> And so he had to have surgery. So if you're going to box, you kind of need that. So he wasn't able to. And so millions of dollars are on this fight. Everyone's going to watch this fight. Big pay-per-view event. So then this guy, uh, the other two guys, picture. This guy, Devin Lariat, says, (laughs) such a funny picture to me. He says, I'll do it. 
You guys need someone? Now, this guy's famous for winning an arm wrestling competition once, maybe sometimes. Arm wrestling. Okay, this is this guy. And I mean, just look at him. He's over 10 years older than this guy. He's clearly shorter. There's kind of a difference in size, if you don't notice. When I keep reading the story, I keep thinking, like, this is such an interesting, like, we would see this, and guess who won this fight? This isn't an underdog story. Just be smart. Who won this fight? The mountain won this fight because he's called the mountain. Look at him. He's a mountain. So he won that fight. I think with that in mind, like we can kind of understand how silly it is that 10,000 Israel men who are already being oppressed, who are already controlled by Canaan, they're going to go up against 900 chariots plus all these other men. There's no way. And so you hear, though, in verse 16, and Barak pursued. Who? Who pursues the chariots? They're fleeing. These 900, they're fleeing. Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Who also flees? It says Sisera jumped. He left his chariot to run away. Why? Because of verse 15. In verse 15, we say, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And they all fell by the edge of the sword. The Lord did that. The Lord does this. And I think some of you have been in church a long time, like, yeah, that's, that happens. God does stuff, and that's really powerful. I think it's such an important story because in these overwhelming odds, God steps in and says, you know what? I can route chariots, 900 of them, in fact. I can take armies down. So what are, what's your excuse? What is, what is your reason? We see, we see some things here about listening, obeying, and humility. We talked about humbly listening and obeying the Lord. Uh, I've got some uh, four, three things here for it. We listen to the Lord in every circumstance. Barak had this moment where he could have said, you know what, Deborah, this is a bad idea. It's known that he has 900 chariots and God's given us wisdom and we should count the cost. And, all and he could have played this argument of like, eh, better not. This is a dumb idea. We all going to get wrecked and God wants us to save our offspring because it's the seed covenant. So why would we go and let all of our seed men be killed? Like he could have had all these good arguments that would have sounded holy. But then he decided, I'm going to listen to the Lord in every circumstance. And he knew that God had chosen Deborah to judge them. And he knew that God had used her to speak the words of the Lord because she was a prophetess. And so he listened to the Lord, right? That's why we, we keep coming back to Deuteronomy 6, but it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Not the Lord is many, not the Lord is shared to the people. The Lord is one. And they said, listen, the word Shema." Right? The Hebrews pray this tons every day. Shemach means to listen and obey. And I hope we see in Scripture, you can't do one or the other. You listen to the Lord and obey, or you haven't listened at all. And so he listens to the Lord in every circumstance. He obeys the Lord in the face of overwhelming odds. Man, I don't want to be like the cheesy pastor analogy, but like, what's your 900 chariots? You know what I mean? It's like the whole David and Goliath thing. What's your Goliath? Like, come on. Like, there's things in your life that prevent you from listening and obeying the Lord. Maybe it's that it didn't work out the way you thought it would last time. Maybe you prayed for the person and they died. Maybe you tried to get away from drugs and it didn't work. You tried to get away from alcohol and it didn't work. Maybe you came to church for a little bit and it didn't work. By your standards, X thing doesn't work. Yet the Lord routes 900 chariots and this big evil oppressor jumps from his 900 chariots and flees because the Lord routes them. Are you listening and obeying? Barak could look back on what the Lord had done. He could say, I know the story of Ehud. I know the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I know who God is. We get to look forward. We get to look back to Jesus. John 16, Jesus says, 
in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And we, we say this every week, Matthew 20, 18. Who has all authority in heaven and earth? Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. Are we listening and obeying him? Because I think that some of you might sit here, some, myself, I'd say, I, I don't listen to God because I don't even know what it looks like to listen to God. How do I listen to God? How would I know what he's saying to me? Barak does all these things humbly. Deborah does all these things humbly. Do we humble ourselves before the Lord because it's all about him? This humility of someone who should receive, I mean, he's, he's Barak, right? He's got, got 10,000 men, right? He should, he should receive glory. He should be, he's he's going to go mow him down. If he takes over 900 chariots, people will remember his name, right? It's a big deal. And she tells him, you're not going to get any of this. And he does it anyway. It sure sounds to me like it's a foreshadowing, a rippling of another leader who humbled himself. Philippians 2.6 Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is our example of this humility. Jesus heard the word of the Lord. He obeyed it, and he did it humbly, knowing that everything is about the Lord and his glory. It's about my Father's will, as Jesus would say. Is that a posture in your life? Do you, do, you, do you wrestle with it and say, man, am I listening and obeying the Lord humbly? What postures are in your life that would like, how would you know? We hit this every week and I can't not hit it because it's so important. You don't know what you don't know. And the whole reason you're here and the whole reason we have life groups, the whole reason we share life together and we say we're one body in Christ, one body, one faith, one baptism. We share in sufferings. We share in celebrations. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, Galatians 6. The reason the scripture goes on and on about us being intricately connected as one, being, being found in him, formed in him, growing in his image with him at the head. No one's uh, above or better than him. We're all con connected as him. The reason that's so important is because we forget and we struggle to listen and obey humbly and so we need each other every week we talk about prayer scripture in church do you have these postures in your life please roll your eyes and think please talk more about prayer scripture in church i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it every week until we walk in here like people who are liberated from the gospel and we're actually transformed through our prayer life through reading scripture and through having churchmanship in christ every week we're going to talk about it because i struggle with it i forget i read the bible like it's a book of knowledge for me I pray so that I can get what I want, and it's all about David. I struggle. I forget. And so we have to talk about these things. This is why we have church. So you can look at the people next to you. Say, last week I had you look at each other and say, I need you and you need me. We can't get past that. If God's brought you here today, whether it's your first time or your thousandth time here, you need all the people around you. You need each other. Do you have postures of prayer, scripture, and church? Without those things, you don't have a shot to listen and obey the Lord humbly. You'll do it arrogantly. You'll make it about yourself. You won't listen at all, and you certainly won't obey. God will tell you to do something. You'll say, eh, maybe another time. Maybe I'll be that kind of father some other day. Maybe I'll be that kind of husband. Maybe I'll trust God forgives me another time. Maybe I'll get away from my addiction another time. Why would you obey? We need each other. Let's keep going in the story. Verse 17, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was a peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her and into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And just, just imagine 
your mom, giving you a nice blanket, giving you a nice meal. This is such a nice, cozy story. Say, yeah, here's a rug, buddy. I'll take care of you. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk. She rubs the ante. Here you go. Here's some milk, boy. I got you. And gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say, no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. Take that in. The author wants us to hear this story as intensely as that is. Oh, buddy, here you go. Yeah, do you want some water? I got some milk for you. Also, you're going to sleep? That's good. Right? Boom! Man, mm. please read that story because that intense gruesome. Imagine a tent peg going through someone's head. Imagine that intense, gruesome scene. There's a reason why it's intense and gruesome here. There's a reason why the author wants us to hear, oh, the evil is destroyed, sin is destroyed through what? Through gruesome tent pegs going through people's temple all the way into the ground. She drove his head to the ground like a tent. It ain't going nowhere. Wind's not blowing it around. You can't pull him down because there's a tent peg through his temple into the ground. Do you get this? Shake your head. Yeah, the head that you could have a tent peg through if you were Sisera. Yeah, you get it? It's an intense story. So he died, as he would, right? You don't survive that kind of wound, especially not in this time period. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. Oh, oh, he's, where's he at? Oh, he's in the woman's tent? Oh, I got a sword. We got to go in there. He's in there. We've got to, shh, shh, shh. Sisera's in here, guys. Come on, shh, shh. Right? They're ready. They're ready. I'll show you the man. So he went in to the tent, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg in his temple. And now Barak gets all of it. Whoa. The woman's tent, that's where ladies sleep. This guy's in there. He's got a tent peg. I didn't have to kill him. God, oh, whoa. The prophetess was right. The Lord will hand him into the hands of a woman. It is why, this is such a gruesome and gory and unexpected story. Like, Again, we can read and get past that. It's so important to lean into the awkwardness and intensity here. Sisir would have never expected the danger he was in. <laughs> it's wild to me that this story is framed with unexpected people, particularly women. Deborah at the beginning, women oppression mentioned at the end to kind of gloss over what's going on, and then kind of the, uh, the climax of the story, uh, maybe the second climax, maybe I look at it, is Jael, a woman. Man, two women being used to end cruel oppression. Deborah was a woman, Jael was a woman. Tent setup was women's work. So you might be thinking like uh, Dumbo and all the men built the tents and they're hammering it in, big tents go up. No, no, no. So back in this time, tent setting up, tent keeping, tent dwelling, that was the women's work, right? And the women, the wife would have her tent that she set up and then she'd set up the other people's tent and then she would go in kind of like the servant, the maid, that sort of idea. And so again, Sisera would all be thinking, I'm going to hide in the women's tent. No one will look for me in the women's bathroom, right? That sort of idea. And then also, this is a big secret thing. Like, like why, would, why would you look for a man in this wife's house? That would never happen, right? Jail used uh, a womanly tool to kill an evil leader who oppressed women. God gives us here in town someone. It's this great irony that this man who used women as objects is killed by a womanly tool. Take that in. Because the, the Bible writers want us to hear that irony. 
right? This man who oppressed woman. A womb for every man, maybe two. Nope, <laughs> woman. Let's talk about women things. Uh, we need to talk about women things, and there's a few cautions. Um, when we talk about women things or any weird thing in Scripture, right, we need to be a little careful because what happens is we are washed in society, and we are washed in our culture, and you are ready for a fight. As soon as I say anything about women leadership, you have all these questions, and you want to pull out your proverbial, like, Scripture guns or uh, um, your history, and I'll say, oh, well, let's talk about women. Four things. Remember these. This applies to not just women, but all sorts of things in Scripture that get difficult, Right? We can't deal with the complex issue of women and men stuff all in one sermon and one church service. We can't do that. So I'm, there's, you're gonna, you have questions? I'm not going to answer all of them. Sorry. Sorry. You want to sit here all day? Sure. We'll talk about them, but you don't. So we can't deal with it all right now. We must read scripture in its context. Okay? Just because something happens thousands of years before Jesus in this time period doesn't mean that it implies something thousands of years later. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't, right? And so we need to be careful that. We need to think about the story uh, in which this is in. We need to think about the book which is in. So the story would be this story of Deborah and Barak. We need to think about it in the book, in the book of Judges, the whole Testament narrative of the Old Testament. And then we ripple out from there. We look at the historical context. We need to be cautious of reading narrative overly prescriptively as what should always happen. There's a lot of things that happen narratively in Scripture. But every time we gather in worship, someone isn't ripping their clothes off and speaking in tongues or, you know, people aren't coming up from the dead. Like, there's things that happen in Scripture that don't happen every Sunday at church, right? And we don't walk away saying, we're a bunch of sinners because no one got super healed this Sunday. That's not the point, right? You don't imply prescriptively everything, especially in narrative, because the point of the narrative is, here, here's what's happened. Look at the bigger picture. And some of you English people are like, yeah, duh. Okay, but it's worth pointing out. Use clear teachings within Scripture to inform cloudy passages. And I think in a lot, the main question I ask, what is the entire trajectory of Scripture? What is Scripture saying? And so, this isn't in my notes, but I'm just going to say it. This verse and, and this stuff about Deborah isn't trying to teach us all about exactly how we approach women in every circumstance, in every church, in everything in 21st century America. That's not the point, right? Uh, but there are two things that I want to point from this. Because also, I think that women are very important in the story. I think that if we just focus on women, we've missed it, right? Two things I think are very important here. Men and women are equal image bearers, but meaningfully different, and both are needed, one thing we can tell in this story in Scripture, women, they're needed. Men are needed. They're different, right? And, and I, we can make all sorts of implications, but I think there'd be too much inference. But in general, Deborah is a prophetess, and she's judging, right? And she's a female judge. That's interesting. But also, she doesn't grab a sword and Joan of Arc the situation, does she? She goes and gets Barak, who's a guy. What does that say? I don't know. I'm not trying to make super implications here. I'm just saying it's worth noting that Scripture's telling us men and women are different, equal image bearers, Right? But they also are different, and they have different roles, and we want to hold that open-handedly because it's a complex issue. Here's where I want to land. Women are valuable in the kingdom. And, and what happens too often is in all this conversation of who has headship and who has authority and who can pastor a church, women lead in all sorts of ways in Scripture. And I'm not here to prescriptively tell you everything that every church should be doing about women leadership. I can tell you that more often than not than history, women get stepped on, they get oppressed, and they get treated terribly. 
And as we saw when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus cared a lot about divorce. And when he talked about divorce, he was talking particularly to men. Because of the standard of the time of divorce, women were the ones who were getting screwed over all the time. And so Jesus says, I'm going to step into this and say, you know who's not going to get oppressed all the time? Women. And when Jesus talked about lust, he talked to men. Why? Not because women don't lust. Women lust. You know that. Women look at porn, it happens. But Jesus understood that in general, there is one gender that tends to oppress women and make them sex slaves. One gender tends to do that. And so Jesus cared to let us know that the kingdom is a safe place for women. And this story reminds us that these women who are oppressed are rescued by God through women that he chooses, unlikely women. And I think that's worth noting. I think it's worth noting as a church and as an individual that we take a step back and say, how do we view women? How do we treat women? Because the kingdom is a safe place for women. And if we are kingdom people, then we're making the kingdom a safe place for them in which they serve. They do what the Lord calls them to do. How's that? How's that for covering that? We asked four questions at the beginning. Who humbly listens and obeys the Lord? What does it say about women? Who gets ultimate glory? And how does this story point us to the gospel? Last two things. The Lord wins, man. I I just want us to hear that. You see in verse 9, she said, uh, Deborah said to Barak, "Uh, I will surely go with you, but nevertheless, um, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of the Lord. Verse 15, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. The Lord wins. This whole story is about the Lord. And we can get excited about tent pegs and Deborah and Barak and talk about women's stuff. At the end of the day, it's the Lord who wins. And it's the Lord who makes sense of all this stuff. Without him, none of this, none of this makes any sense. Just a weird story. It's all about his glory. Everything is about his glory. Do we seek the Lord's glory in our life through listening and obeying him humbly? Or we're making it about us. If we make it, if you look at the first, the beginning and end of this, in Judges 4, 1 through 3, what you have is cruel oppression. They don't follow God. They, they forget and they worship idols. And as they do that, what happens? They have cruel oppression. Women are treated terribly. They lose the land. All these bad things happen. They have chaos. They have disorder. They have sin. They have death. They have cruel oppression. And then 531 comes along and says, and the land had rest for 40 years. The word rest there is also for peace, peace without war, a time of things getting back to the way they should be, is what the phrase means. What happens in between those things is the Lord. The Lord wins. The Lord brings peace. In us, we find oppression and cruel chaos. But the Lord, he brings us rescue and peace. John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus giving us peace. And this brings us into a conversation of perspective. Judges 4 and 5 are two different perspectives of the same story. In fact, in, in Judges 4, there's, uh, uh, it's a narrative, and there's uh, only, God's only mentioned, the Lord's only mentioned in four verses, and three of them it's Deborah speaking, right? And then chapter 5 is a worship song about what the Lord has done. It reads like a song. It reads like poetry. It reads about a worship song that we would sing about, look what all the Lord has done. There's a perspective shift here. And I think it's very interesting that if you look at the world in light of chapter 5, then you see God is behind everything. God is in control. It's all about his glory. We humbly listen and obey him. If you just read Chapter 4, you might get stuck on who Barak is. You might get stuck on who Deborah is. You might get stuck on who Jael is. Oh, I, I want to be, be the tent peg lady. Ooh, I'm going to be the kind of mom that will drive a peg through your temple, boy. Like we get really focused on this. I'm going to be like Barak. I'm going to be like kind of guy that's like, I'm going to do whatever, and I'm going to honor women by following them as leaders. I'm gonna do. Stop. The story's about the Lord. 
And thank God for Judges chapter 5 because it gives us a perspective that all of this happened because it's about the Lord and His glory. Do we humbly listen and obey the Lord? Do we have a Judges 5 perspective? Church, is that our main focus? Is what we're doing to humbly listen and obey for God's glory? Are we still trying to hold on to what we want, what we think's best, what makes us look great? How the world will know Memorial Baptist Church. It's not. And we'll come and go like every other church, but the church eternal of Jesus Christ that lasts forever. So we do things for his glory. That's why we gather. I mentioned earlier that we need to talk about how things connect to the gospel because, again, man, I overemphasize. There's a tent peg through that. I did it right here, if you remember. I don't remember the noise I made, but there's a tent peg through someone's temple. It's a gruesome story. All these stories that get really gruesome remind us that sin and evil and chaos and disorder and corruption because of our forgetfulness, our idol worship, because of evil, these things are gruesome and messy. And they need a rescuer. And rescuing is gruesome and messy. And as sin has corrupted a mess that ripples far beyond what we can even imagine, then we have Jesus. As a tent peg is drive through the temple of an evil ruler who oppresses people, and that's God's chosen thing, a tent peg through the temple, there were other pegs that were driven through God, through Jesus, to save us. And I don't want to make some cheesy connection, oh, there's a tent peg here, there's a peg here, but it's worth acknowledging that if you want to understand how obvious your sin is, how gruesome it is, how awful it is, how awful the world is. You turn on the news, you're like, look at all these awful people. Or you're very self-aware and you're like, man, I can't quit smoking. I can't quit cussing. I can't quit treating people badly. If you want to understand how bad it is, read about the cross. Because God loved you so much that he had nails driven through his feet, through his hands. He's brutally killed, brutally dishonored. Humbly, it says, for you, for me, for his kingdom, so that we could be made right. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree, that we might die to sin and live righteous. By his wounds you've been healed. God is rescuing oppression all through scripture, and ultimately his plan was to set us free from our rebellion and sin, from your rebellion and sin. By his wounds we have been healed. So what do we do? How do we humbly listen and obey the Lord. <laughs> I, have, I had all these applications written down and things, and then as we were singing, we were singing, here's my life, Lord. I just started, I couldn't stop writing some of the stuff. I think it's really important. Here's what all meets the road, folks. David, speaking to myself, God created you for a reason. Say, God created me. God. Even if you don't believe it, God created you. Even if you don't trust God, God created you. And he's not an idiot. He's not a bad planner. In fact, he knows everything. And so if God can use a tent-dwelling woman, and I can't kick that in the dirt hard enough, because the way the readers would have read this, they would say, a tent-dwelling woman. She is so low here. And maybe she was the wife of this person, but, but so random that God used her as a part of his plan. If God used a female prophet as the only judge, what's your excuse? God created you for a purpose. God created you, and he loves you, and he wants to have a right relationship with you. And, and I'm pleading, if you're a church member, please, man, read the church covenant. We're doing this together. If you're not a church member, you need to hear us anyway, because it's eternally true. God created you for a purpose. And if you're not humbly listening and obeying him, then what are you doing? Because your job will come and go. 
Your kids will move out of the house. All your stuff will be sold in garage sales when you die. It'll be given to your kids and your great grandkids. And then somewhere down the line, they're going to not care about it and they're going to sell it. Nothing you hold actually is yours. But God created you for a purpose. If you're not listening and obeying him humbly, if it's not all about his glory, what are you living for? Why are you here? Why are you a parent? Why are you a spouse? Why are you a, why you have your job? Why, 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 why? Please let those questions ripple through your mind. And I hope they create doubt and insecurity because so much of us, so many of us are so prideful, we never think about these things. As the band comes forward and we move into a time of response, I want us to be considering how do we humbly listen and obey the Lord? And you can think about prayer, scripture, and church and those sort of posture in life. But if anything else, I would just encourage you to open your hands and say, God, what are you trying to say to me? And how do I respond right now? Some of you, that might mean giving your life to the Lord because you haven't. You don't really trust him. You can't trust him. You can't listen and obey him because you don't know him. Some of you, that might mean, man, God's been telling me to get baptized. God's been telling me to join a church. God's, whatever it is, there might be something. And, you know, you hear those decisions every week. Man, I don't know what God's telling you to do. But he's giving you this moment to listen and obey him humbly, all about him. Did God wake you up this morning to come to a church service to hear me yell a lot about scripture so that you can go and eat lunch and move on with your life? Come on, wake up. Stop being here if that's all it is. What a waste. Go golf. God wants you here for a reason. Please don't golf. It's boring. God wants you here for a reason. So during this time response, open your hands. I want to read one verse. We've read it for a few weeks now, but I can't get past it. When Peter preaches a sermon in Acts 2, they were cut to the heart and they say, what do we do? What do we do about this? Because we believe that we need repentance. We believe that we've killed Jesus. We believe that he took the, the, the nails and, and he was hung for us and that we can. What do we do with this sinful, separated from God posture we have? And Peter says this, Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As you open your hands right now and you say, God, what are you saying to me? That's where you start. Have you repented and believed the gospel? Have you been baptized? Do you see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? If not, don't let this moment go by, please. God brought you here for a reason. Let's stand, let's pray. God, I pray that you would guide our time of response right now. Through this wild story you've given us in scripture about tent pegs and chariots, and we still see you, we still see Jesus who ultimately sacrificed everything for us, and you want a right relationship with us, you want to rescue us. God. I don't have all the words. I pray that you would move right now. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you, uh, whatever you're doing, I pray that each of us individually would listen and obey, that each of our families would humbly listen and obey, that our church would humbly listen and obey. Help us to open our hands to you right now. That we'd repent and believe in the gospel. You transform our minds by the power of your spirit. Thank you for your love for us. Amen. If you need someone to talk with, if you need to pray, I'll be down here.